Theology is the queen of the sciences. Said no one ever. Actually, everybody said that for centuries, particularly during the medieval times. The best scholars of the day would say that understanding and studying God was foundational and foremost when it came to studying and understanding the world. Authors Kenneth Boa and Robert Bowman, in commenting on Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, and Newton, said, the four individuals who did the most to pioneer modern science were pious men whose belief in God was integral to their view of science. It was Isaac Newton himself who said, we account the scriptures of God to be the most sublime philosophy. I find more sure marks of authenticity in the Bible than in any secular history whatsoever. It's 2018. Newton is long gone. This idea that theology is the queen of the sciences is all but dead. Today, Christianity is questioned, it is put to the test, and it is oftentimes ridiculed. Embracing Christianity today seems like committing intellectual suicide. Christians are seen as those who don't engage in critical thinking, who are accused of being naive and narrow-minded, misinformed, and waking up in the morning and leaving their brains in the closet. Faith is viewed as a crutch, leaned upon by the weak, the uneducated, or the emotionally crippled. Many today would agree with Karl Marx, who once said that religion is the opiate of the masses, like a drug, it reduces the suffering of the sick or injured and provides them with pleasant illusions to carry them through and give them strength to see tomorrow. Christianity today is seen as a leap into the dark abyss, hoping that Jesus will catch you. So, what is our response? Uh, what is our answer to these kinds of accusations. Apologetics. Now, today's topic is apologetics. And as we conclude our series on evangelism, we're going to talk about something that is not evangelism. It's related to evangelism. It's a helpful tool when you do share the gospel with someone, but it is not evangelism. This is apologetics. Now, what exactly is this? You hear the word apologetics, maybe you haven't heard it before, and you think that it has something to do with saying, I'm sorry, apologizing to someone. Does it have to do with that? No, nothing like that. Now, let me give you a definition of apologetics up front. Apologetics is a rational explanation of the Christian faith. It is a rational explanation of the Christian faith faith. So again, I repeat that apologetics, given this definition, is not evangelism. Evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Evangelism is calling people to salvation, calling people to believe in Christ. And this results in one of three things. Evangelism results in salvation, the hardening of that person's heart, or the planting of a seed that will sprout later. Apologetics, on the other hand, does not proclaim the gospel, does not call people to salvation, and so through apologetics alone, no true conversion can take place, but coupled with evangelism, coupled with the proclamation of the gospel, it is effective. 
But the benefit of apologetics is that it does show the logicalness, rationality, and coherence of the Christian faith. And that can be helpful for you as a Christian, and it can be helpful for a non-Christian as well. So turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. We're going to read verses 14 to 16 to see the context. 1 Peter 3.15 is the apologetics verse. It's the one that all the apologists use. It has the Greek word for apologetics in it. I'll point that out to you. But let's see where we get this concept of apologetics. 1 Peter chapter 3, let's read verses 14 to 16. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame." Notice verse 14. The context is persecution. Don't be scared. Don't be troubled by those who persecute you. But instead, verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And here's the key phrase for us today. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Here is your call, Christian, to be ready to be prepared at all times, to stand ready at all times, to give a defense, give you a reason, give a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, that word defense in the Greek is apologia, where we get apologetics. And this word apologia literally means a reply, an answer. So we always stand ready to give an answer, to give a reply to the question, why do you have hope in Jesus Christ? So know that in the realm of apologetics, we are not answering the question, what do you believe? No, this is when your friend comes up to you and says, yeah, 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 I get it. You've told me, I understand what you believe. My question is, why do you believe it? And that's when your answer is apologetics. This rational explanation for the Christian faith. Your faith in Christ. Now, don't miss the end of verse 15. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Attitude matters. Gentleness is treating the person with love, kindness, not trying to put them down or be condescending, and then respect, treating them as a fellow human being, uh, not just treating them like a means to an end, someone to debate, someone to convince, someone to defeat, someone to prove wrong so that you can have another notch in your belt and feel good about yourself. You see, your testimony is a huge part of apologetics, a prideful answer, a smug answer, even if it's correct can turn a person away and make them never want to talk to you again. You know this when you're talking to your friend, right? And you have a disagreement about something, maybe some little detail about a movie that you both saw. You think it was one way, and he says it was the other way. And so you say, let's settle this. Google it. You Google it. Google the movie, and you are right. Ha! in your face. Well, at that moment, it's more than about just who was right or wrong. Because that person's not feeling very good about themselves at this point, right? And it's the same thing with apologetics. You can be right. You can give a correct answer. You can prove them wrong. But if you do it with this pride, this smugness, without gentleness and reverence for them as a fellow human being, then that's going to turn them off and turn them away from Christ. 
You see, a correct answer can be a bad testimony. By giving a correct answer, you can bring a reproach on Christ. You can make Christ look bad. And that person may end up saying, hey, I, I see something true here, but I don't want to believe it it's, if it's going to turn me into that guy. So, attitude matters. Uh, Richard Pratt, in his book, Every Thought Captive, says, all too often Christians become so interested in the techniques of practicing apologetics or the theory supporting apologetics that they forget how their lives affect their defense. It is this neglect which often reduces Christian apologetics to hot air, empty words without the concrete testimony of a godly life. Okay, now that we've defined apologetics and we've seen the gentleness and respect with which we do apologetics, now let's look at two different types of apologetics, classical and presuppositional. A good one and a great one. Classical apologetics I like. Presuppositional apologetics I love. And I'll explain it as we go along. Let's first look at classical apologetics. It's named such because it's believed that it was the earliest method used in church history, that this is the old school way of defending the faith, so it's called classical. Its major concern is improving the existence of God. So to give you a definition of classical apologetics, it is rational argumentation for the existence of God. It's built on the premise that the starting point for proving Christianity is proving theism, that there is a God. You prove there's a God, then it's easy to prove the rest of the Bible. If you can just prove to someone that there is a God, then that's like standing at the top of a hill with a giant stone and moving that stone, taking a lot of effort to move it down, but once it starts rolling down, it continues to roll and roll and roll, and it's easy to prove the rest of Christianity. So how do classical apologists argue for this all-important foundational concept of theism? Well, let me give you four different ways. First of all, the classical apologist will hit you with the transcendental argument for the existence of God. The transcendental argument for the existence of God. And we're starting with the hard one. I'm getting you guys while you're still fresh. Nobody's asleep yet, hopefully. So this is probably the, the most difficult one to grasp. It's the most abstract, the most philosophical. So hang with me here. The existence of logic and reason argue for the existence of God. That's the transcendental argument for the existence of God. The existence of logic and reason argue for the existence of God. That there is logic and reason and rationale in this world points to a God. So we're not talking about the physical world here. Regardless of how you think the physical world came into being, there are some things that transcend the physical, thus the term transcendental. And these transcendent things uh, that go above and beyond the physical are things like logic, reason, and rationale. So how did these non-physical, immaterial transcendent things come into existence? Well, this argument says that these things came into existence by a logical, rational God who made us this way. It argues that God is the necessary precondition for logic and reason because this kind of transcendent thinking doesn't belong in a physical world. It couldn't exist in a physical world unless there was a transcendent God who put it there. In addition, there are rules to logic, are there not? How do we know that this is a good argument and this is a bad argument? How do we know if something is logical or illogical? How do we know if this way of thinking is rational and this way of thinking is irrational? How are we even to have arguments and debates with each other and, and judge what is a valid argument and what is not? 
all signs point to a God who is himself logical and actually defines logic, sets the parameters and guardrails for logic, and himself made logic. So that's the transcendental argument. Number two, the cosmological argument for the existence of God. This argument states that the law of cause and effect argue for the existence of God. Cosmological, from the Greek word cosmos, meaning world, uh, understanding that the world is itself is an effect that needs a cause. If you want a mnemonic device to help you remember it, cosmological sounds like cause. So that's how I remember it. Cause and effect. So there's two important terms here. A uh, first important term to understand is a contingent being, a contingent being. Uh, my plans with so-and-so to watch the movie are contingent upon whether he finishes studying for his midterm. Uh, it's dependent. A contingent being depends on something for existence. You, for example, are a contingent being. You are dependent on your parents for your existence. And we find that the chair that you're sitting on, that this lectern right here, that the lights that are shining bright right now are all contingent because they depend on something else for their existence. The second important term here, in contrast to a contingent being, is a necessary being. A necessary being is one that is not dependent on anyone or anything else for existence. It simply exists on its own. A necessary being can exist independently regardless of whether anything else exists at all. So the cosmological argument states is that if this world was full of contingent beings, then nothing could exist. Every contingent being must have a cause. And if you trace back to the cause, then you find that the cause has a cause, and that that cause has a cause, and you go all the way back to the beginning, there must be some kind of uncaused cause. There must be some self-existing being who knocked down the first domino and started this chain of cause and effect. All of this cause and effect couldn't have started from nothing because nothing can't do something. It has to start with something. There must be a first uncaused cause. All of the movement in the universe must have been started by an unmoved mover. And this lines up with Scripture, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. The Bible tells us that God was this first cause, this unmove mover. He was the necessary being that began this chain of contingent beings. The third argument that classical apologists will use is the teleological argument for the existence of God, which states that the appearance of design and complexity in the universe argue for the existence of God. For example, you can look at the design and complexity of the human cell and how each little part works together, something that no doubt you've done at UCLA. You can look at the fact that the human body is made up of 37.2 trillion of these complex cells. You can look at the different complex systems in the human body, our circulatory system, respiratory system, nervous system, our skeletal and muscle systems. You can look outside of yourself at the complexity and the movements of the solar system, how photosynthesis works, how the Krebs cycle works, and all of this points to an intelligent and powerful creator. And by the way, the Krebs cycle is literally the only thing I remember from AP Bio. <laughs> So the world we live in is complex and beautiful, 
Imagine going to an art museum and seeing Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa or seeing Van Gogh's Starry Night or seeing Michelangelo's David and seeing all the the detail and beauty of these artworks and saying, whoa, must have happened by chance. Must have just came together on its own. No, you recognize the creativity, attention to detail, and genius of the artist, and you praise him for that genius. Uh, You could also think of the classic watchmaker analogy, which I think is a good one. If you're walking in the woods and you come across a watch on the ground, you wouldn't think that this watch just came to be on its own. You wouldn't say, well, it must have been random chance or random forces that put this watch together. All the little parts, the multiple wheels, the cogs, the screws, the springs, the battery, the two hands, the numbers that all work together to keep time And so a watch must have a watchmaker. And when you look at the universe, which is so much more complex and performs functions so much more impressive, you admit that there must be a universe maker. And that's exactly what the Bible says. Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans 1, 19 to 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You take a biology class and you learn how the world works on a molecular level, you go to spring retreat, and you sit under a big dark sky and bright shining stars, and you see the fingerprints of a creator. You see the artistry and creativity of an intelligent creator. And it won't be hard to see because Romans 1.19 says God has shown it to us. He's made it plain to us. And then fourthly, the moral argument for the existence of God states that the presence of objective and universal moral standards argues for the existence of God. The fact that we are moral beings, that we know right from wrong, that our conscience bugs us when we do something wrong and we feel guilty points to a moral God who created us to be the same way. If there is a consistent moral standard that transcends culture and transcends time, that's significant. Because then you got to ask yourself, how did we all in history come to be this way? Objection from your non-Christian friend. Morality is not objective. Morality is subjective. It is relative, and therefore it's easily explained that societies come together and determine the moral standards of that particular community. And it's true that there is some very slight variance in the standard of morality from society to society throughout history, but the basic underlying principles of morality are consistent across societies, across borders, and across times. Basic principles like justice good, injustice bad. And that's a biggie. Helping others good, hurting others bad. There are some things that everyone can agree is evil, child molestation, Hitler's Holocaust, rape, abusing the weak and helpless, taking advantage of the elderly and children. Take your most relativistic friend, the one who says that morality is fluid. It's determined by the society you're in. 
It can be whatever you want it to be or your community wants it to be. Take that friend and follow him to work. After he works for two weeks and it's Friday, it's payday, and his boss doesn't give him a check. He's not really down with relative morality at that point. They say, that's wrong. And everyone would say that that's wrong. We're all born with an innate sense of justice. No parent needs to teach their kid the phrase, that's not fair. They say it on their own. You have two children. You give one an ice cream cone, the other one you don't give one. And the one who doesn't get it says, screams, that's not fair. And the other one who has the ice cream cone says quietly, that's not fair, but that's okay. That's sweet. I'm good with that. Just proving sin nature. So there are objective and universal moral standards, standards that transcend culture and time. Furthermore, there is this concept that some authors, uh, old authors, I think, have called this sense of oughtness. Uh, we ought to do what is good. We ought to do what is right. So not only do we know what is right and wrong, but in addition, we know what we should do and we know what we shouldn't do. There's something inside of us pushing us to do what is good. Now, we don't always do it. In fact, when we choose evil over good, we know we've done wrong, and that only reinforces the truth that there is a standard of morality that is built into us, this sense of right and wrong. If you see a second grader being beat up by five bullies in the fifth grade, and they're just beating him to a pulp for no reason at all, you walk by and you have this innate sense that that is wrong and this compulsion that you should do something, that you should stop this. And if you do something and interfere and save the little second grader, then you know you've done right. But if for some reason you freeze, you panic, you hesitate, and you just walk along, you walk along with a guilty conscience. You walk along knowing that you did something wrong. Why do we have these feelings? Why does everyone have these feelings? All signs point to a moral creator who made us like him, built this sense of morality, this standard of justice and injustice into us. And this too lines up exactly with what scripture says. Romans 2, 14 to 15 for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. When the Creator made us, He wrote the law on our hearts, engraved it into our consciences, so that if we do evil, our conscience accuses us, pricks us, lodges a splinter in our brains. But if we do right, then our conscience excuses us and gives us relief. God made us with a moral compass, and that compass points straight to Himself. So, this is classical apologetics, using reason to argue for the existence of God. Let me go back to the definition. Definition of classical apologetics is rational argumentation for the existence of God, and it's good. They are helpful arguments to show the existence of the God that we believe in, the God of the Bible, and that's why I use classical apologetics in evangelism, but why I think that it's good and not great. Looking back at the definition of classical apologetics, let me highlight one word, and that is the word rational. Rationale and logic are good but they are not sovereign. 
So let's take a look at some limitations of classical apologetics. Again, good, helpful, both for the believer and the unbeliever, but here are its limits. First of all, reason can become an idol. If we crown reason as king, and we only believe in God because of the sovereignty of our reason, then we have placed our own minds above God. We have put our minds and our rationale as the king, as the judge, and you judge what the Bible says. And this is inherently unchristian. This is inherently self-worship, raising yourself up and really makes it impossible to even be truly Christian, to raise yourself above God and his word. So reason can become an idol. Second limitation of classical apologetics, which relies heavily on reason, is that man's reason is fallen. Adam's reason fell with him when he fell. Our reason is imperfect, flawed, and always bent towards sin always bent toward believing what we want to believe and not believing what we don't want to believe so that we can get what we want, so that we can get what we desire, so that we can keep on sinning if we feel like it. We learned this back in fall quarter with Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We're all born naturally as truth suppressors, sticking the truth that we don't like in a suitcase. And even if it's overflowing with truth, we sit on it, stuff it down, pretend like it doesn't exist. Look at how else scripture describes our reason, our minds, later in Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 4, 17 to 19, now, I say, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous. Our minds, according to scripture, are foolish, darkened, self-deceiving, desperately sick, hardened, ignorant, calloused. So is this the kind of reason that you want to live your life by? Is this the kind of reason that you want to make king? Is this the kind of reason that you want to be your ultimate authority. Michael Vlock, a professor at the Master's Seminary, my professor for apologetics, says, reason is not the common ground upon which the believer should try to make contact with the unbeliever. Unbelievers possess an epistemic bias uh, is to twist God's truth for their purposes since they are truth suppressors. Granting human reason as common ground means granting the unbeliever autonomy in using his human reason to determine whether he or she should believe in the God of the Bible or not. The Bible does not grant this right to the unbeliever. The unbeliever is called to repent and believe the gospel. The story goes of a man named Charlie who slept in for work. And his wife comes and wakes him up. It's Charlie, it's, it's 10.30. Got to go to work. Charlie says, I can't go to work because I'm dead. Well, I said, you're not dead? What's wrong with you? Get out of bed. Stop fooling around. I, I can't. I'm, I'm dead. Charlie, quit messing around. Get dressed and go to work. I wish I could. But I'm dead. Finally, the wife says, okay, something must be wrong with this guy. So she calls a doctor. And the doctor comes over. I guess it's old school. A lot of old school things today. Doctor makes a house visit and checks his temperature, checks his pulse, checks his heartbeat, checks his breathing, and says, Charlie, you're not dead. Charlie says, oh, no. 
I'm dead. Charlie, I checked all your vital signs, and you're doing just fine. In fact, you're healthy. You're not dead. Charlie says, I'm, I'm dead. Doctor says, okay, looks like you need a different kind of doctor. So he calls a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist comes over and says, Charlie, why do you feel like you have to say these things? Why do you have to uh, convey to others that, that you're, you're dead, even though you're not dead? And, and Charlie says, oh, well, it's simple. It's because I'm dead. I'm dead. Finally, the psychiatrist says, okay, here's, here's, here's the final test. See whether you are dead or not. I know for a fact that dead men don't bleed because the heart stops beating, the blood stops circulating, and the, the blood thickens, coagulates. Uh, so you poke a dead body with a pin, not going to bleed. Oh, really? Okay, let's, let's figure this out once and for all. They go down to the morgue, they find a cadaver, and the psychiatrist takes the pin, pokes it into the cadaver, and sure enough, no blood comes out. So now, Charlie, let me prick you. Pricks his thumb. Charlie begins to bleed. The psychiatrist says, now, Charlie, do you, do you see? Charlie says, yeah, I see, can't believe it, dead men do bleed. <laughs> there was no convincing Charlie. He believed what he wanted to believe, uh, despite whatever evidence was presented to him, and in our natural state, in our unconverted state, we're the same way. We believe what we want to believe. You see, you can present all four classical arguments for the existence of God perfectly, eloquently, and the atheist can still refuse it. Uh, instead, uh, they'll just go home, hop on the, their, their laptops, and look up the atheist arguments and believe those instead of the arguments that you gave. So that's the second limitation of classical apologetics, is that reason is fallen. The third reason that classical apologetics is limited, and it's related, is because the unbeliever's problem is not primarily intellectual, but moral. If the problem of non-Christians was purely intellectual, you could argue him into the kingdom of God. You just present the best arguments, and you learn how to do it convincingly, eloquently, and that's how people become Christians. But that's not the case, because the problem with fallen man is not intellectual, but moral. So you present all your four arguments to the unbeliever, take your notes from tonight and argue classically. And one step further now, he actually believes it. He's not the atheist who rejects it in the hardness of his heart. He believes it now. I believe there is a God. Great. Now bow down to this God. Love this God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Forsake all the sins that you love and follow Jesus Christ. No. I'm not going to do that. Is the usual answer. Because... Man's primary problem is not intellectual. It's not being convinced. It's not academic. The problem is his heart. His hang-up is not academic. His hang-up is having to stop the way that he's living and to love, obey, and follow Jesus Christ. You see, there's ultimately no spiritual power in reasoning. There's no spiritual power in classical apologetics to change someone's heart from hating God to loving God. 
uh, to, to causing someone to repent from their sins and follow Christ and love Christ and live for him. So, where do we go from here? Enter presuppositional apologetics. The best presuppositional apologetics. It's a really, really long name for a very simple concept. I'll give you definition. Presuppositional apologetics is, the, is a rational explanation of the Christian faith assuming the truth of the Bible. Presuppositional apologetics presupposes something. It presupposes the truth of Christianity. It begins with a given, and that given is that the Bible is true. The apologist presupposes the truth of Christianity and then reasons from that starting point. So if you want to argue for the existence of God, you argue from the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You want to know who God is? Let's look at what God says about himself. Let me point you to Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Let's learn more about God, shall we? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let me take you to Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells me God exists and tells me who he is. So you see that presuppositional apologetics doesn't have the same shortcomings as classical. There's no danger in reason becoming an idol because God and his word stand as the ultimate authority over any kind of reason. Secondly, man's reason is fallen, so this apologetic relies not on man's flawed reason but on absolute truth, the rock-solid word of the living God. And third... The Bible attacks not just intellectual problems, but the moral one. It goes straight for the heart. If the problem is moral and not intellectual, then the word of God calls them to repent from their sins and follow Jesus Christ. If the problem is that it's sin and guilt keeping people from God. The word of God offers forgiveness and cleansing. If the problem is a foolish, darkened, self-deceiving, desperately sick, hardened, ignorant, calloused heart, then the word of God unleashes the power of the Holy Spirit to renew their minds. If the problem is that they're dead in their trespasses and sins, then the word of God is the imperishable seed by which they are born again to a living Hope, if the problem is that they need Jesus, and it is, then the word of God presents him in all his glory. The word of God is the power to change hearts. Presuppositional apologetics is best because it unleashes the power of God's word on people's hard hearts. And at this point, you might say that that works sometimes, but I got some non-Christian friends that that's not going to work on because they don't believe the Bible's true. What about them? It's pointless for me to open up the Bible with them. Vodi Bauckham gives the illustration of two medieval knights approaching each other, ready to duel. And one knight unsheaths his sword and says, prepare to die. I don't know. <laughs> and the other knight says, I do not believe in thine sword. And so at that point, the first knight has two options. One, well, okay then. 
put it back in its sheath. I, let, me, let me just try to talk to you here. Let me convince you that it's made out of, out of real iron. And it's very heavy, and it's very sharp, and, and these are the reasons why it's very important to believe in my sword. Second option, cut him. <laughs> and he will believe in the sword. And so don't think that just because they don't believe in the truth of the Bible that you have to put it away. Sure. Use the classical arguments for the existence of God, but take that sword back out afterwards because the Bible is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible cuts straight to the heart. Ephesians 6, 17, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to cut, to convict, to change, to soften, and to save. If they don't believe in the truth of the Bible, don't feel that you have to get away from it, that you have to lean only on classical apologetics and put the sword away. Use the sword. This is a spiritual weapon for spiritual warfare and will prove ultimately most spiritually effective. And do you see how easy it is to transition to the gospel here? And we must preach the gospel. When you guys go out this week for fishing week, you can show them all four arguments for the existence of God. You can answer every question. You can win every argument, but you still may not win a soul. And you can even go to presuppositional apologetics and answer every Bible question that they have and, and show them the answers for election and limited atonement and divine sovereignty versus human responsibility and Jonah being in the belly of a fish for three days. And you can show them all of that but still you have not given them the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we conclude this series on evangelism, let's end with evangelism, shall we? Let's end with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's end at Calvary where Christ hung on a cross and not forget to deliver this message because this is the message that saves. Paul never lost sight of this. 1 Corinthians 9, 19, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And then three more times in verse, verses 21 to 22, that I might win, that I might win, that I might win. Paul had a clear mission to win, not arguments, but people for Christ. And he knew what he needed to do to win these people. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. All of these arguments for the existence of God, all of these biblical answers that they might have questions to are not the gospel and not of first importance. Classical apologetics may answer some gnawing questions that your unbelieving friends have and remove some of the stumbling blocks in their thinking so that... They give audience, they lend their ear to you proclaiming the gospel, which is of first importance. Classical apologetics may steer the conversation in a spiritual direction so that you can end up proclaiming the gospel, which is of first importance. Presuppositional apologetics shows them what the Bible has to say about their questions, shows them who God is and what he has said so that you can show them who he is in Christ and what he has said in the gospel, which is of first importance. And both classical and presuppositional apologetics may help you to answer some questions that you have help you understand that your faith is logical, that your faith is reasonable, that is not just a leap into the dark abyss hoping that Jesus will catch you, but it's based on rationale and the truth of the Bible so that you're more invigorated, so that you're more passionate, so that your passion overflows into preaching the gospel, which is of first importance. We must proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we might 
win some. Two random students on campus this week as you fish, to your family and friends that you love so dearly, may those you love the most, family and friends, not perish right under your nose. May you not at least attempt to give them the message that saves because their souls hang in the balance. Their destiny hangs in the balance. And these are the people you care the most about. I want to conclude our sermon today and our series with this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Our country is blessed to have the First Amendment. Not every country has something like this. Not every country has the freedom of speech or the freedom of religion. And maybe one day we won't have the freedom of religion either. And I got to thinking just what's the point of having this if we're not going to evangelize? Right? Why even have this? Why even have the freedom of religion if we're not going to open up our mouths and tell people about Jesus? And on the flip side, positively, what, what an opportunity, right? What an opportunity that we have at this time. Unlimited opportunity to open up our mouths and use our voices to call people to salvation, to give them the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation and forgiveness of sins, knowing that faith comes by hearing. I'll give the last word to Horatius Bonner. What a mystery. The soul and eternity of one man depends upon the voice of another. What a mystery. The soul and eternity of one man depends upon the voice of another.